I start this episode with a question from a listener. Go ahead, listener. Dad, you owe me like six months of allowance. Yeah, well, you haven't been off the couch in like six months. Let's just call it even. Can you please just read what I wrote for you? I really love the podcast. What's the hardest part of doing the podcast? How about once more with your expertise, fake enthusiasm? I really love the podcast. What's the hardest part of doing the podcast? Thank you, authentic listener. The hardest part of doing the podcast is just keeping up with the podcasting lifestyle. The money, the yachts, the cars. That's why I'm really excited to have an automotive expert on the show today. Should I buy a Bugatti or a Lambo? Hey Alexa, should I buy a Bugatti or a Lambo? Sorry, I don't know that. Hey Google, should I buy a Bugatti or a Lambo? You should buy a Lambo, Steve, because you're one badass Advantage, Google. Also, Bugattis are for like Alexa. That seemed unnecessary. Hey now. Welcome to the Consumers During Corona podcast. I'm Steve Krause. For most consumers, autos are the second biggest purchase of their lives behind a home. It's a fascinating category. It's both practical and emotional. It's being turned upside down by the corona economy. My guest today is a real expert in the field, so let's get right to it. Well, I'm really excited to talk to my guest today, Zach Klimp. Zach fell in love with the auto business while working part-time at a dealership in college. Now he's founder and CEO of Selly Automotive, which is a San Francisco-based startup that provides CRM services to hundreds of car dealerships. He was also named to the Emory 40 Under 40, very prestigious for a young man. And uh, he's actually my first podcast guest who holds a patent. Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, automotive is such a fascinating category at any time, but especially at these times. But before we get into that, I've got a little game I like to play with guests who come on the show just to get to know them a little bit better. A game I like to call The Lightning Round. The Lightning Round! I am so good at lightning rounds! I majored in lightning rounds. Zach, what is your hometown? I am born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. What are you binge watching these days? Recently, I've been watching Michael Jordan, The Last Dance, the ESPN documentary, and it's been really interesting. I kind of think about leadership, actually, when I watch that documentary and also a big basketball fan. Very nice. I actually went back to getting live TV again, just so I could see the basketball playoffs. Same here. I got YouTube TV just for a month to watch the playoffs. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm doing uh, Hulu live TV for the same reason. Nice. Very cool. It's interesting how much we all missed live sports and just those things that kind of brought us together. People watching the same things at the same time. What book or podcast would you recommend these days? Hmm. I like Jason Calacanis. He has a show or podcast, more like a video podcast called This Week in Startups. And it's really informative. You know, it talks about big startup news of the week. He does interesting like interviews with investors and founders of startups. What is your favorite website or app that many people haven't heard of? I got an interesting one. It's called Genius Scan. So a lot of times I'll have to still like physically sign a document. I'll give you an example. Recently, I had to sign the California 25102 notice and they want a wet signature. So it's an app where you could print a document and then you scan it in and it makes it look like an old school kind of scan. 
and it really captures the image quality well. So I use that a lot, um, believe it or not. That sounds like it's a lot better than the solution that I've come up with, which is I, I print something out, I sign it, I take a picture of it on my phone, send it to myself, pull it into PowerPoint, crop <laughs> it really well, and then I save it as a PDF and send it to somebody. At even places that tell me, no, we can't accept a, a photo, <laughs> this, this works. So uh, wow. your, your solution sounds much more elegant. What was the last thing you bought online? Last thing I bought online was Sensodyne toothpaste, a three-pack via Amazon. Now, what's the most unusual thing you've bought online? Keep it safe for work, please. Sure. Um, I, a couple of years ago, got a Dolly sign lithograph, and uh, it was kind of pain to ship. It was, you know, in a glass frame and everything, and I was concerned about it breaking, but luckily it was delivered safe to my place. Nice. Uh, so that's an actual Salvador Dali you bought online? Well, it's a lithograph that's signed by him, so not like an actual original print. What brand do you remember fondly from your childhood? Well, I think growing up in Atlanta, like a really popular airline is Delta. And I feel like Delta is a great airline. Like last year when I could actually travel, I hit Diamond Medallion, which is 120,000 uh, miles. And it was, uh, you know, I think Delta does a great job, even with safety nowadays. I've done three flights during COVID, all have been on Delta. And, you know, they space out the middle seat, they give people masks if they don't have it to come on board. And I think they're doing a good job in a really tough market. Given everything going on in the world today, what brand do you think really gets it? Well, I'll give you an auto brand first, um, Carvana. They're up over 675% since March, and they're basically the first company at scale to sell used cars online. So they're definitely having a moment during the pandemic. If you're talking more general, like outside of auto, I would say Amazon, because I'm getting like three or four Amazon boxes just about every day. Now, today we're going to be talking mostly about autos, but you also have a really interesting perspective on the corona economy in different countries. So, for example, you have an office in Manila, and I know you spend a lot of time in the Philippines. How do you see the corona economy playing out differently there than in the U.S.? Yeah, so really interesting question. Back in February, I had to go to Manila because we got a new office and COVID had already started in China. And a lot of my employees told me we need N95 masks. We can't get any. So I got some N95 masks. I wore a N95 mask on the 19 hour flight between uh, San Francisco to South Korea to Manila, Philippines. And when I got there, everyone was wearing masks already. Keep in mind, this is February. And wow. to get into our hotel, there was a security guard who would like scan your head with a thermometer. That was the first time I had my uh, head scan with the thermometer just to, you know, get in the building. In our office building, there's someone with like a machine gun who's basically going to scan your temperature before you go in. And I think, you know, in the Philippines, one really unusual thing is a heightened level of security. Like if you go to a mall, they're going under your car, like scanning for bombs. Um, everyone has to wear a mask. Everyone has to take the temperature check and they don't argue kind of due to the, you know, force. Um, 
But if you talk about kind of the Philippines and consumerism, one really interesting thing is that malls are still a big deal in the Philippines. Like everyone goes to the mall to socialize. Shops are filled. Like people love American products as well. And one interesting thing about the Philippines is that most of the signs are in English. Everyone, for the most part, speaks English as a second language. So one other interesting, you know, part about the Philippines is that they love American brands so much. Like going to TGI Fridays, for instance, that's a huge deal. You know, getting a coffee at a Starbucks, that's a big deal. People will pay a huge fraction of their daily paycheck just to go to Starbucks, sit there for an hour or two to look cool because they're at a higher end American restaurant or American place. And I think there's a huge love of Americana. They love like 70 and 80s rock bands. like, And that's something that people wouldn't think about a Southeast Asian country. Well, let's talk about the automotive industry. People might think, well, nothing's really going on there. People have stopped driving. They're not really buying cars. Manufacturers just shut down for a while. So it's all quiet. So Zach, how wrong would I be in thinking that? <laughs> this has been one of the most interesting times for the automotive in industry. And if you think about it, the pandemic has thrown off like the natural balance between supply and demand. So back in March, a lot of new car manufacturers shut down for the first time in terms of production of new vehicles. Um, you've seen companies like Carvana be a huge beneficiary. Like I mentioned earlier, their stock's up over 675%. They're selling cars online. And used cars have also had a moment. And if you look at the average transaction price on a new car, it's $38,000. That's actually up $1,200 year over year. The average price for a used car right now is around 20000 That's up over $900 year over year. But wow. the interesting part is because so many people are buying used cars, the wholesale prices of used cars have shot up. It's getting a lot more difficult now for dealers to source inventory at the auction. A lot of our dealers, they might have anywhere from 20 to 50% less vehicles in their inventory right now than they did earlier in the year. And it's a result of just being difficult to find like the right vehicles at the right price point. And earlier in the year, a lot of new car manufacturers, you were seeing uh, commercials like don't make your first payments for six months, or, you know, we're offering 120 month financing. And then there was also the extra, you know, $600 a week that spurred some purchases, you know, this summer, kind of earlier in the year. Right now, a lot of consumers, they're waiting for that second round of stimulus. A lot of the PPP money has, you know, dried up or people or dealerships have already taken advantage of that. And another kind of interesting observation we've had with dealerships is they're running with smaller teams now. So a lot of dealerships either furloughed or let go of employees and they're running with smaller op operations, but they're taking advantage of new digital tools to interface with customers. And they're also doing things like remote delivery. There's a product called 
digital retail and a lot of dealers are implementing this think of like e-commerce amazon like checkout but for the dealer website to combat to combat like a carvana like experience it does seem like the perfect storm of so many factors coming together on the on the consumer side obviously you have a lot of consumers who are cautious about the money that they're spending mm-hmm. at the same time they're taking less public transportation they're less comfortable with ride sharing but Anecdotally, I've seen some evidence of, of maybe bigger cars are having more of a moment that uh, mm-hmm. you know they, they need bigger cars that can handle the whole family. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah. And another interesting consideration is one of the most in-demand jobs right now is a delivery person, right? Whether mm-hmm. you're delivering you know, Uber Eats or groceries or whatever it is. So that's you are seeing you know, an increase in interest in larger cars. Also, the price of gas is down significantly in a lot of states, except for San Francisco and California. Yeah. On the consumer side, you have consumers more concerned about finances, less public transportation and ride sharing. And that's really kind of driven a lot of this interest in in used cars. And like you mm-hmm. said, at the same time, there are all these demand factors that have come into play where manufacturing just shut down for a couple of months. So it's really a, a huge imbalance in supply and demand that we haven't seen before in the auto industry. Have you seen a time like this before? You brought up a comparison like post-World War II earlier and how that, you know, there was high demand, low supply. I think the Great Recession of 2008, there were some similarities, but a lot of differences. Like right before the Great Recession, you had the 2003 to 2008 energy crisis. Mm. And that discouraged, you know, purchases of like SUVs, pickup trucks, things of that nature. After 2008, you know, during the recession, you had Ford that, you know, stopped production and went from like 90,000 employees to 40,000, GM and Chrysler, you know, they went bankrupt. So I see that is some similarities because we felt, you know, recession-like during, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think that it was a much different case because, it was more financial based. And like right now, a lot of it is based on the pandemic, people not wanting to catch COVID-19. That's why, you know, factories shut down. But I, I would say like 2008, the Great Recession would probably be the most similar comparison to what's going on right now, but still definitely different. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, 2008 had that same sense of financial shock. It was much more of a point in time. It was more also from a consumer point of view, I think more of an abject fear that the the wheels could completely come off the economy in a way that we've never seen. Whereas now it's a much more drawn out kind of existential angst, living under uncertainty for a long period of time. And I think that's also shaping how people are thinking about used cars versus new cars. And, you know, when I can get a used car for half the money, that's that's really the way to go. Right. Uh, Like you said, I think the last time that I saw this big uh, imbalance in supply and demand was right after World War II, because you had the greatest generation come home from World War II, uh, many of them then using the GI Bill. That was kind of the the flowering of the American dream in terms of that sense of people wanted uh, to 
get an education that house in the suburbs and cars became such a, a big part of that notion of what the American dream was. But more of it was really focused on new cars. And uh, Detroit in World War II had switched over to manufacturing for the war effort. So it took a while to get going. So there was this huge imbalance, all this demand, very little supply. And that's kind of when you know the whole trope of car dealers as kind of being unethical and really squeezing consumers. That's really where that whole dynamic started. And of course, consumers had a lot less information about what were the real profit margins on cars. So today, this is obviously very different. I mean, there's still an imbalance of supply and demand, but you have a much more empowered consumer in part because of all that digital technology. You're so right. And when I worked in the auto industry, I was working around 2010, and that was when consumers were really starting to get smart. They were starting to use things like Kelly Blue Book, understand you know, the invoice price of the vehicle. And at my dealership, we actually required a consumer to print the internet price from the dealer website and bring it in the store in order to get it. And at that same time, people were just starting to use mobile phones. They'd pull out their mobile phone and they'd say, hey, look, I have this price. Why do I need to print it out? And I think what a lot of consumers don't realize is that a lot of dealerships are running on like 5% profit margins. Of course, if they're selling like a luxury vehicle, it's going to be higher. I'm talking more like your standard Toyota or Ford. And most dealerships, um, they get a lot of their inbound internet leads from consumer-driven marketplaces. So you have publicly traded companies like TrueCar, Cars.com, and car gurus that basically get all of the consumers to do the research on their website and then they sell leads to the dealerships from anywhere from like a thousand to ten thousand dollars a month per lead provider those marketplaces like TrueCar, for instance they've pushed you know transparency where you know the consumer will see like a true car price and they go into the dealership and they expect that true car price. So I think, you know, to shed some light on your point earlier, a lot of dealers, they're not running with high margins. Like if you were to go to a jewelry store, for instance, they'd be running off much higher profit margins. But the fact that a vehicle is the second largest purchase besides a home that an individual will make, the money's bigger. You know, even if it's only 5%, you might be talking about a couple thousand dollars. So that's where I think some of the frustration, distrust from a consumer comes in. And a lot of them aren't aware of kind of the car business and how it works. What they should be more concerned about, though, is the financing. So most dealerships are going to make their profit margins on the F&I products. That stands for finance and insurance. So think about like gap coverage, extended warranties, or the interest rate that you're paying. Let's talk a little bit more about digital because obviously yeah. that's becoming a huge part of of this whole process. And you mentioned some of those, you know, players like Carvana and CarMax and Vroom that have all seen their stock prices really take off mm -hmm. in part because digital is such a huge part of how consumers are in the process for a new car. 
There was an interesting study by Google and Luth Research that found that there were over 900 digital interactions that precede a card purchase. All of the research, all of the searching. It's just really interesting to me because I, I would imagine you work a lot with used car dealerships. That's kind of your business is kind of helping them get more digital savvy. Uh, and many of them are kind of small businesses, you know, integral right. parts of smaller communities, but maybe not the most digitally savvy. How do you how do you work with them to become more digitally savvy? I'll tell you some interesting um, points that you might find humorous. A lot of dealers, when we start working with them, they might not even have an email address at their own domain. So they're still using an AOL, a Gmail, or a Yahoo email address for their business, even though they might have five to ten million dollars worth of inventory on their lot. We offer a CRM system that stands for like customer relationship management. So think of like a Salesforce or a HubSpot like product. And before having our product, most of these dealers, they're using pen and paper, they're using Excel, they're using their Gmail inbox and sharing the credentials with their whole entire team. They're, you know, text, they're letting salespeople text from their mobile phones, not being, you know, TCPA compliant, sending opt-ins, opt-outs. So when we first start working with the average, you know, independent dealer, they're really not um, as tech enabled as like their new car dealer counterparts. A lot of new car dealers are owned by larger conglomerates, let's say like an auto nation, for instance, so larger like dealer group. And, you know, they set specific technology and new car OEMs, they require specific technology with used car dealers, also known as independent dealers. They don't have any of that OEM money. They're not part oftentimes of a larger dealer group. So they're kind of running the show themselves. And usually what an independent dealer does, they'll have like a basic website, like let's say it's a basic $99 website that would look like your standard WordPress site. And they're investing in like two or three lead providers. Maybe they have TrueCar, CarGurus, AutoTrader, Cars.com. And that's pretty much been their business for the last, you know, five or seven years. What's changing now is dealers are starting to understand that they want to build their own presence online. They don't want to just be reliant on like a car gurus or true car for all of their leads. So they're starting to think from the digital standpoint, whether it's SEO, paid search like Google AdWords or Facebook, you know, how could I start making my own digital footprint? And that's why some of these um, digital retail e-commerce like products are so popular because they could have that checkout experience, for instance, on their website. But the problem is a lot of the times with these digital retail products, they're not focused on the actual credit rating. Let's say someone has uh, 800 credit score. It's based on an estimate of their credit score. So they might come into the dealership and they have a lower credit score than what they put online and they have to redo the whole deal. So there are definitely a lot of kinks they're still figuring out in these digital retail products. But that's kind of a high level on what I've seen with used car dealers, how they operate and some of kind of the changes that we're seeing at Selly. 
it must be a tough spot because you've got smaller independent dealerships, like you said, not very technologically savvy, but the customers who are coming in have done a huge amount of digital research. And those places, like you said, they're spending hundreds and thousands of dollars a month to these other digital players in the ecosystem. So that's uh, that's obviously a tough situation for them to be in. And I think that um, another caveat to the used car dealer marketplace is it's so fragmented. You think of CarMax, the largest used car dealer in America. They have less than 1% market share. And there are all these different niches in the used car market. You have um, a lot of dealers that focus on like subprime. So for instance, let's say a customer has a bankruptcy and a 400 credit score. They can't go to a Ford dealership and get, you know, a brand new Ford Taurus. They oftentimes are going to a used car dealership that deals with like subprime financing. Or, you know, you have dealers that sell like only Highline inventory or dealers that sell like salvage cars, cars that have been in accidents. And one observation that I've had, there's a lot of hype right now around selling cars online, especially used cars. But I feel like there's only a specific part of available used cars that could be sold online. Like for instance, if a used car had 80,000 miles or it had a previous accident, you probably would not want to buy that side on scene online. But if you look at like what a Carvana is usually selling, it's like a like new cleaner vehicle, oftentimes no accidents. So it's easier to purchase that online and have the comfort that, you know, it's going to be a good car when I get it and they have, you know, return policy. But if you're buying like higher mileage used car, you probably want to have your personal mechanic check it out. So I definitely see the need for um, that traditional model still existing um, and, you know, catering to a segment of the marketplace. But the part that's being most disrupted right now are the used cars that are like new, much easier to sell online, sight unseen, kind of like a new car, kind of like what Tesla's doing. Yeah, I want to get your take on Tesla because I, I know some people who, uh, who work in marketing over there and they don't really have a big marketing presence because they're one of those rare companies that's literally selling their product faster than they can make them. But what's your take on Tesla? Tesla's a really interesting EV company. Nowadays, you're seeing more EV companies go public through something called a SPAC. That's a special purpose acquisition company where they basically, let's say, have a company that IPOs with a billion dollars under management. And then the goal is to acquire another company through a reverse merger. And those companies have benefited from Tesla's success. I think it's harder to recreate what Tesla's done because earlier on, they did have a lot of government subsidies. They've done a great job building a cult following. Elon Musk is basically the biggest salesperson for Tesla. If you think about it, he's putting out a lot of yeah. controversial, interesting tweets, and he almost has that like Steve Jobs like allure. And I think what they've done is really interesting because they have, you know, higher profit margins than the average OEM. And what they're doing, they're selling these cars online. People are reserving sometimes a year or two in advance. They don't even like, for instance, the new Tesla truck, they don't know when that's going to come out, but they're already putting advances on it. And 
I think that they've done a great job building EV technology. They're definitely the leader in their space. And they've started to kind of differentiate a little because they acquired Elon Musk's other company, uh, the solar company, and they've kind of integrated that into the Tesla brand. So we're not just selling you a car. We also have, you know, solar roofs as well. And there's a lot of headwinds right now in terms of energy. You know, that's even a big topic in the elections in the debates you know the environment so i think tesla is at the right place at the right time they've done a great job with branding they've done a great job selling new cars the next piece for them to figure out is what do they do with the used car side of their business like a lease return for instance oftentimes used cars will need to be sold in a slightly different way than I'm going online, I'm customizing my brand new Tesla and it's going to be delivered to me. But I'm I'm a fan of what Tesla is doing. I think that he's a real disruptor, a really interesting entrepreneur. And I think they're definitely the leader in the EV market. But what you're seeing now is companies like Nikola, and they've had a lot of bad press recently. You have some EV companies that have gone public and they haven't even sold a car yet. So I think that you're going to get some more competition come into the space. Uh, companies like BMW, they're starting to catch up with EV technology. So I think that Tesla will always kind of be a dominant leader, but you're going to get more saturation in the EV marketplace. Yeah, I would expect the other OEMs, especially at the higher end, would eventually catch up on some of the technology. But there's the distinctiveness of the Tesla brands that I think will still stand out. Right. So obviously, a lot of consumer behavior around cars has changed as a result of the corona economy. Some more tactical kinds of things. So searches for things like test drive from home or contactless buying are up. So I always ask my guests, what kind of trends do you think are going to snap back after we get beyond this, uh, hopefully someday soon, but I think more likely 2022? What kind of trends are going to snap back versus what will be more lasting changes in consumer behavior? If you're looking from the auto industry perspective, I think some of these like digital retail-like experiences or even getting a test drive delivered, that will stick. I think there's definitely... Uh, market for that. And the COVID-19 pandemic has brought that out in terms of digital retail delivery, you know, some of the searches that you mentioned. I think what will come back, you'll definitely have an audience that wants to go to the dealership. Like I'll give you an example. If I'm looking at a Toyota Highlander and they have a four cylinder, a six cylinder and a hybrid model, three different SKUs essentially of the same Highlander. It's difficult to go online and have three of those vehicles delivered to your house. Like you're gonna wanna go to the dealership and you're gonna wanna test that. And a lot of times when a consumer, even if they go online and they think they have a vehicle that they want, they go to the dealership and they see something different, maybe something they weren't researching before. And they make an emotional decision right then and there to switch cars that they were on and potentially buy a new car. So I think that you'll see a lot of consumers who kind of feel like I'm, you know, pent up in my house. I haven't been outside in a while. 
they'll want to go outside. They'll want to, you know, go to the used car dealership. They'll want to touch cars. They'll want to test drive cars. So I think you'll also have a large audience that will come back to kind of the traditional way of buying cars. But every dealer is going to have to have what I call an omni-channel presence. So they'll have to have an online component where, hey, if you prefer to work online with us, you know the exact car you want, you want it delivered to your house, sure, we can work with you in that capacity. But also, if you want to come to the dealership, hey, we're open, um, I think they'll take some of the cleaning precautions they're taking now where they're cleaning cars and they're clean when someone gets in. That's that's something that, you know, maybe a year or so after COVID will still exist because it's still top of mind, like, oh, I don't want to somehow get germs or COVID by touching something. So I think some of the cleanliness uh, measures like having hand sanitizer at stores and things like that will stick. But curious, what do you think, Stephen? Like, what are your thoughts kind of on auto and what may or may not stick from your perspective? Well, I think when you talk about omnichannel, you hit on something really important. I think one of the most overstated storylines about consumer behavior and about business in general is has been the retail apocalypse. Certainly, mm -hmm. there are a lot of retail stores that have had problems. Uh, but actually, if you look at a lot of the companies that have done well in recent years, particularly in the retail world, a lot of them have a very strong brick and mortar presence. So, you know, Walmart has done very well. Target has done very well. Home Depot has done really well. So you're looking at companies that are really figuring out omnichannel. I, I think especially for something as, as big and emotional as vehicles. That's another interesting thing about cars like you mentioned cars are the second biggest purchase of somebody's life houses are, are number one but there is kind of that similarity of such a big ticket purchase they're going to do a ton of research a lot of it's very digital but it's also very emotional and there's no substitute for going to the house walking around experiencing it and i think that's very much true for cars that there, there's not going to be any substitute for that experience of going to the dealership and walking around and touching and feeling and sitting in them. You know, a lot of my background is in market research and a lot of market research in the automotive space has gone more toward uh, kind of virtual reality, having consumers sit in virtual reality mock-ups to help get some consumer input into design of vehicles. But even that is a little artificial and arbitrary, obviously. There's there's just no substitute for in-person. So I think uh, omnichannel is, is the way to go. And I think you hit on a lot of, of really important points for, for businesses in general that might be a little smaller, not really technologically savvy. How do they become more digitally savvy? It's, it's a couple of things. One, I think, is it's kind of trying to buy a complete solution as opposed to trying to build everything themselves. And obviously, that's it's a big part of what your business is about. But uh, you can imagine, I'm sure you've seen dealerships that say, oh, we're going to get digitally savvy, and they try to do it on their own. And it really just takes such an investment of time and money and expertise that that is, is really hard to pull off. So I think you know, looking for a complete solution that's a little bit more out of the box, uh, the importance of branding, the importance of specialization, like you mentioned, yeah. I think those takeaways are important regardless of, of any category when you're thinking about less sophisticated companies trying to get more digital. Agreed. And I wanted to add two points to that. You know, you mentioned something that I definitely preach a lot, and it's kind of niche and differentiation of your small business. 
So I see a lot of successful dealerships going more boutique or having some sort of differentiated focus. I'll give you a couple examples for context, like Shoreline Auto Group, they have over eight bilingual sales reps. We speak your language is kind of their differentiator. Some dealerships, they advertise like an out-of-state buyer's program. So if you take a flight out of state, buy a car from us, we'll basically reimburse you the price of traveling to our dealership. Or, you know, some dealerships, they might, you know, focus on first time buyers programs, you know, 18 or older interest rates starting at, you know, 1.49%. So I think is dealerships is the market becomes more competitive. You need to have a clear differentiator in your small business versus other small businesses because they're over 17,000 new car dealerships, but they're over twice as many used car dealerships. So there's even more competition. Again, you're just seeing more and more focus on a differentiated niche. Another interesting thing that's happening in the automotive industry and actually happening in a lot of industries, and maybe you've seen some of these, are subscription models. So there's a company called Fair and they raised a billion dollars in debt and equity from investors like SoftBank. And they have a subscription model for used cars. And basically you could get a month to month lease essentially on a used car without having to like lease a traditional 24 month or 36 month lease. So that idea of subscription model, Porsche has their own version, Volvo has their own version, BMW has their own version. Just like what my business is, software as a service, you're seeing that high level idea of a subscription model being put on new consumer driven products that may have not had a subscription before. Boy, subscription models are so, so hot. A, investors love them. So that's that's driving a lot of the innovation because if you have a small business and you sell it, the multiples you get as a subscription model company or a SaaS company are, are just so different than what you would get from a traditional brand. We've seen uh, subscription models take off in all kinds of categories, even a lot of direct-to-consumer categories where historically nobody sold direct-to-consumer. So even in something like beauty, you've seen subscription services like Birchbox really kind of take off. When you think about a subscription model, do you think that would benefit maybe certain brands more than others? You know, if you think about it, you know, new cars and OEMs, if you're, does someone decide, oh, we're going to be a Mercedes family and we're going to have a couple of Mercedes mm -hmm. and it's so easy because we have the, the subscription with them. I mean, it's kind of like multiple leases going on at once, but it's less tied to the individual vehicle. Or do you think that's something that the independent dealers could leverage as well? I think right now where it's working better is more so on the luxury side, like for instance, Porsche Passport. Like if I wanted to get a Cayenne for the weekend and drive a Carrera, you know, Monday through Friday, I could do that through the service, but it's over $2,000 a month. And even fair, you know, if I wanted to like lease couple year old BMW 3 Series, it would still cost more than that traditional 24 or 36 month lease on that same vehicle. So I think right now the barrier to entry for the used car side of the marketplace is the economics. I think most of these subscription models in the auto industry are not profitable yet. 
in order to really get into the used car side of the market, you probably are looking at like a $300 a month like payment. If they could get something like that with a subscription model, then you could definitely you know, get a section of the market. And then for a brand like Ford, is it a big deal to switch out my Ford F-150 for a Ford Explorer? Maybe not so much, but I think on the luxury side, if someone likes like new cool cars, like you mentioned Mercedes, like, hey, one weekend I want to drive an S-Class, the next weekend I want to have, you know, an AMG convertible, that could definitely, you know, work. And because the customer understands it's luxury, they could have a little more profit margin kind of baked into that. Zach, we've been talking for a while. I really appreciate your time. You're obviously a tremendous expert in this category. I'm just really impressed by the depth of your knowledge. I've got one final question that I ask all of my podcast guests. What one piece of advice, personal or professional, do you have for helping people survive and thrive at this time? It reminds me of a recent podcast I did with a guy named Dale Pollack. And Dale Pollack started Auto. It's the largest inventory management tool. And he sold it for over $200 million. But the interesting part was that he was blind. So he got a dealership with his dad and he ended up going blind and he wanted to figure out how he could price inventory without seeing it. So he made this product called Viato, where just by scanning the VIN, you could figure out the wholesale value of that vehicle. He you know, went through a lot to build that into a successful company, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of pivots. And the advice that he told me was to never give up. And I think that a lot of people, especially during a pandemic, you could get depressed. Maybe you've been furloughed. Maybe you've lost your job and, you know, you could kind of get really down in the moment. But I think that, you know, understanding like, for instance, right now during the pandemic, eventually, you know, this will end. Um, it may not go back to 100 percent normal. But, you know, this is just a phase right now. And I think that, you know, having that belief in yourself that no matter what, you could make it through, you could be persistent, keep trying and never give up. I think those words, when I interviewed them, it really stuck with me. I've had some friends reach out to me who have been furloughed and let go of their jobs and, you know, really down. And that's just something that really sticks with me. Never give up. You know, things will get better. It might take a while, but stick to your guns and continue going forward. Zach Clamp, CEO and founder of Selly Automotive. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Please like, upvote, leave me a review, smash the subscribe button. It doesn't work if you just click it. You have to smash it. Hit me up on LinkedIn. Let me know what you think. Have a great week. Stay safe and stay sane, my friend.